Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. What city would you like to go to that you have never been to before? That is, if you could visit any city in the world or in the United States and you've never journeyed to it yet, what city pops in your brain right now? (laughs) Brother Andrews, Boones Mill, Virginia. How about that? All right, man. What an exotic trip that'll be. I'll tell you. The city as a teenager that popped into my mind um, and the city I still yet to go that I've always wanted to go to is the city of Philadelphia. That is in Pennsylvania. And this city, it's known for a great Liberty Bell that rings throughout our history of a country. Also, it's known for their cheese steaks. It's also known for the Mummers. It's also known for Rocky Balboa climbing up those staircases to defeat that enemy in the ring. Also, it's home to many professional sports teams. The, the 76ers and Allen Iverson there in Philadelphia. We also have the Philadelphia Phillies, the football team, the Eagles, and the hockey team, the Flyers. And as you know, Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. But the reason why I always wanted to go there as a youth is not because of any of these special features, but it's for one park. It's called Love Park. And Love Park, it's not, I'm not wanting, I used to not want to go there by the, by what most people would want to go there for. Not that I've been bitten by the love bug as a teenager and want to take my sweet lover there to see that park. It's actually because it's a paradise and safe haven for skateboarders. There in this one park in the city of Philadelphia where skaters would go and travel and they would be kicked out of places. This would be one safe space that they could go to and the police officers would not run them out of town and give them tickets and take their boards away. In this park, there is, there's many staircases that you could jump down and do tricks down. There's ledges that you can jump upon and do all sorts of grinds and different tricks. And then there's a large fountain there with a, an extended larger staircase that many skaters would jump down and land inside the fountain. And so as a youth, I always wanted to go there. And maybe one day I'll get to go. But I share that with you because we think of Philadelphia today. We think of there in Pennsylvania. But when the Bible says here, this Philadelphia, this is not the same Philadelphia. This is not a modern Philadelphia. This is the ancient Philadelphia. And this is the the word that we get the idea of the city of brotherly love. And today, as we come to this passage, I want you to understand this, that when, when Jesus was giving this word to John, he was not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was talking about a city named Philadelphia in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And it is this city, which was very like Sardis. And it was, was a part of the ancient kingdom of Lydia and part of the Roman province in Asia during the New Testament time period. It was located about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. 
and about 70 miles east of Smyrna and lay at the upper end of a broad valley that passed through Sardis and near Smyrna. Remember, as we're traveling through this Roman road, it's a postal road that, that the people who would take letters and mail, they would get on this road and they would go for all these cities. Now, of course, there's other cities than these seven cities. There's other churches than these seven churches. But these seven cities and these seven churches were like hubs for all the other churches. And we come to the sixth one today, Philadelphia. This city was known for two major things. Number one, earthquakes. This was a city that was sitting upon a major fault line, kind of like California is on a major fault line today, and, it's, and it has all these earthquakes. A similar fashion in the, in the, in the ancient world with Philadelphia. Then they were also known for their great vineyards and grapes and juice and all of the things associated with vineyards. Like Sardis, Philadelphia was almost destroyed by a massive earthquake in southwest Asia in A.D. 17. The tremors continued for years, historians tell us. When the Muslims overran Asia Minor in the 14th century A.D., Philadelphia rested far longer, or excuse me, resisted far longer than other cities and became an island for Christianity. We're told that this city of Philadelphia was kind of lodged up, up, up higher than the others, and it was fortified and was able to have greater protection than the other cities when the Muslims came and to overrun some of those areas. We see that this city would be a place where, in the ancient world, Christians who were persecuted in other cities would flee and run and resort to, to find a safe haven. And today we have a city that's there. It's a Turkish town, and I have no idea how to pronounce this town. But it is a populated by 16,000 people and contains ruins of many ancient churches. And we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God is still being proclaimed in this city today in modern-day Turkey. Now, all that, I want to bring to you the main message of this book, or excuse me, this letter of the message that God is giving to the church of Philadelphia. That is, the, as we, if we could summarize the, the thoughts that Jesus Christ has for this ancient church, it could be summarized with one word today, and that is this, faithful. Faithful, faithful, faithful. So today I want to label the title of my sermon with these three words, the faithful church. This church goes down throughout all of history to, re, to be remembered as a church that is found faithful in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Today, the key statement that I want to relate to you, that is, if you walk away with anything, this is the thought I want you to walk out of these doors with today. God calls every Christian, in every congregation, in every generation to be faithful. God calls every Christian, in every congregation, in every generation to be faithful. That is the message today. Be faithful. God wants you, God wants me, God wants every Christian throughout every age of the church to be faithful to him and to his word. So my question for you today is this. My question for all of us today is this. Are we being faithful to Jesus Christ in our walk with him like these believers were in the ancient world? Today I want to ask this question. In fact, as I was meditating in these several verses, here's the question that, that was ringing in my mind. Since this church is faithful, what are the characteristics of a faithful church? What are they? What, what are the attributes of a faithful church? 
So today I want to look at this ancient church in Philadelphia and I want to just pull out five specific characteristics of a faithful church that, was, that wasn't necessarily applied to, to this church then, but we can take and apply it to our church today. Or in fact, we could in fact ask ourselves this question of every church in the, in the modern day era, if they're faithful. Is the church being faithful and do they have these characteristics? Today, I want to draw your attention to these several verses and share five thoughts with you today. The first thought is from verses seven and eight. And here's the first one. Here's the first characteristic of a faithful church. Number one, a faithful church has miraculous, powerful strength. A faithful church has miraculous, powerful strength. As I have been meditating in this chapter, or these verses of this section of the chapter, I literally could preach three sermons to you today. And Brother Andrew's earlier today, made sure that the clock was changed and a new battery was pressed in it. But I tell you today, I have no longer any care for what the time is. And I'm going to preach you three sermons today in this sermon. Today, three in one. And I'll be sure to get you out of here by 6 p.m. this evening so we can have time for our evening service. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But as we look at verse number seven, we see a miniature sermon within the major part of this section of Scripture. And today, as we look at verse number seven, we have to keep in mind that because God, it, God is able to give us miraculous, powerful strength, because he is, first of all, look here, it says he is holy. Notice here, it says the angel of the church in Philadelphia to this angel. So the messenger is bringing this word to this church, and it's the same word God is revealing to us today. It says this. These things says he that is holy. Now, now, let's keep in mind here. Let's pause. As we have studied each of these churches so far, all five of them that, that precedes this one, that many times, in fact, every time up to this one, the writer goes back to chapter one in the vision that God gave to John and highlights some characteristics about how Jesus is attributed and some of, his, some of the ways we describe him. Now, here we see this church. Jesus is giving characteristics of himself to this church that's really not necessarily found in chapter one. But there are truths about God and about the Son of God. And so the first one is simply this. Here's the first thought in this miniature sermon found in verse number seven. God is holy. God is holy. And so the one who's speaking this is the Son of God. So if God is holy, we know that Jesus is holy. He is holy. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we, we see that there is only one God, and this God is absolutely holy. And in the New Testament, we know that, that our God is a God of consuming fire, that God demands all of us to be holy because he is holy. And in, math, excuse me, in Mark chapter 1, we read that Jesus was out in his earthly ministry going and he was preaching the word of God. He was teaching the word of God. He was discipling those who were, who were following him. He was healing those who were sick. He was casting out demonic spirits. And in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, we read in verse 21 how this demonic spirit cries out and says how he is the Holy One. In Luke chapter 1, verse number 35, the messenger Gabriel, or the angel Gabriel, gives a message to Mary and says that this child that you're bearing is holy. And then in Acts chapter 3, in verse number 14, we read that, that in the time when they were proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the, in, the, in the early church, they were going out and sharing the gospel, they were sharing a message that they rejected the Holy One of Israel. So we see that God is holy, and so is Jesus. Jesus is holy. If Jesus is God and God is Jesus, then Jesus in God is holy. Notice he goes on to say, this is who's saying this. 
So the messenger here is holy, and he is sharing these words. The messenger here of Jesus, he is holy, and the Bible says that he is true. So God is not just holy, God is also true. In fact, the greatest truth in all the world is not what's written in the encyclopedia. (laughs) The greatest truth in all the world was a man who lived for 33 years, about 2,000 years ago, and his name was Jesus Christ. He is the greatest truth the world has ever seen. No matter how many degrees you may ever get or try to obtain in your lifetime, the, the truest being that ever existed is Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Revelation and a few other sections here in chapter 15 and verse number 3, it describes Jesus as being true. In fact, actually, it, it describes him as being true and his word being true. So if Jesus is true, then therefore his word is true. Look at verse 3 of chapter 15. They're singing the song, and it says, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. In chapter number 16, in verse number 7, they say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Judgments are like laws that are being decreed. And we see that no matter what, law, or no matter what word has come out of the mouth of God, we know that His decrees and judgments are righteous and true. Chapter 19 and verse number 2, the Bible says these words. It says, For true and righteous are His judgments again. And then in verse number 11, it says that, 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 that John is writing, he says, I saw heaven open, and he says, he's beholding a white horse, and he says that the person that sat upon that white horse was called faithful and true. So we see Jesus is true. And then Jesus in his own words in John 14, remember what he said? He said, I am the way. And he says, I am the life. And he also says in between those, he is the truth. Pilate saw Jesus Christ face to face and said, what is truth? And he failed to realize that he was staring truth right in the face, that Jesus is the greatest truth the world has ever seen. God is holy, God is true. But then check it out now, the Bible says that God is the one who has the key of David. So God has the key of David. God is true, God is holy, God has the key of David. Now understand this, what does this mean? Understand that David is the Old Testament character who is probably, outside of Moses, the most esteemed character in the entirety of the Old Testament. They viewed him as as their leader, captain and king, And oftentimes, we see that David was a type of Jesus Christ. We look back into the Old Testament, we see how David ruled and David reigned in Israel for a period of time. And we know that the scriptures speak about David's kingdom being established, in a sense, or Christ's kingdom being established like David's was. And so we see that just as David reigned in the Old Testament, we know that Jesus Christ will will reign in the future here on this earth. So what does this mean? This gives the idea of messianic authority and sovereignty. That just as David in the Old Testament had authority and he had had sovereignty and authority to rule in that period, we know that Jesus has has greater authority and greater sovereignty in the world today and in the future. In fact, if you read here in in verse number 7 where it talks about how he that opens and and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens, that here it gives gives a literally like a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And it is the key of David is a reference to where the key of the house of David was given to Eliakim, who then had access to all the wealth of the king. (laughs) Do you want to be rich today? 
Do you want to be wealthy? You got to have the right key to be wealthy. And I'm not talking about Warren Buffett's key. Or I'm not talking about Bill Gates' key. I'm talking about the key to eternal riches in Jesus Christ. And the only way to, have that, that, to get into that gate, if you will, is through Christ. So here we see that this, in a sense, is referring to the messianic kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. But I believe it's, it's, in a sense, referring to the spiritual kingdom. That is, that if you come to Christ and you know him, you get to, you get to spend eternity with him in heaven. And it also refers to the physical kingdom that Christ will establish on the earth in the future. But then check it out now. It talks about he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Here we see that God is holy, God is true, God has the key of David. But then check it out now, God opens and closes doors. Have you ever tried to open a door that's locked and you didn't have the right key? Didn't matter how, how, how hard you ran and hit that door, you're going to fall flat on your face. Especially if it's a metal door. No matter how many times you try to kick that door open. It's not going to go open. Sometimes in our lives, we try to walk through doors that God hasn't opened for us. Sometimes in our lives, we try to, we try to close doors that God has opened for us. So what, is it, what does this mean here when it says that God opens and, and, and closes these doors? Well, there's three ways to view this passage here. Some have subscribed that it means that doors open to salvation to the kingdom. And in a sense, that's true. God is the one. In fact, Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said, I am the way. And, and listen, if you're trying to, to take a key of some other merit outside of Jesus Christ to enter into heaven, you will be vastly disappointed when you enter into eternity. Jesus is the only way to God. There is no way. Salvation is only found through him, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. He gives life to all those who cry out to him. So yes, if you want to enter the spiritual kingdom, it's only through Jesus. If you want to be here on this earth during the physical kingdom, you can only go through it through Jesus. But then check it out now. It talks about doors. Some have subscribed. It means doors to open, doors open to blessing. And we know that. We believe that. God rains down blessings on us. And then another way to handle this verse is, is this. God, doors open to evangelism and service. And we see in verse number eight, as the writer goes on here, it says, I know thy works. I mean, can you imagine here? Can you imagine God saying he knows your works? Which, by the way, he does. He knows what you're doing and why you're doing it. But check it out now. Because God is holy, because God is true, because God has the key of David, because God opens and closes doors, he's able to give you and me miraculous, powerful strength. Because he is the great I am the most powerful being in all the world. And he's the one who knows our works. And it says here that this church was given an open door that no man can shut. So listen, whether I believe that we should view all three of these ways about this opening and closing doors, that, that yes, God is the one who opens the doors to salvation in the kingdom and to the blessing and to evangelism and service. So, so when God opens those doors for us, let's walk right through it. And God ultimately gave this church in the ancient world an open door to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. But then look, it goes on to say, in the middle part of verse 8, it says, For thou hast a little strength. Would you say little with me? Little. Say it again. Little. And one more time, please. Little. Now say strength. Strength. And one more time, please. Strength. What does this mean? This church only had a little strength. Well, it does appear that, as many historians have noted, that it might refer to 
The reason why this church had little strength is because it had few numbers. You know, I find it so interesting that in our culture, we think success is in numbers. That a church is successful when they have a large crowd. A church is successful when they have a large, flashy, fancy facility. But I want you to know this. That's not what successful is. A church is successful when they are faithful to God and to God's word. Sometimes we think about megachurches. That is, the numbers have been changed throughout the years. At one time, they said it was 1,200 or more is the megachurch. Now they're saying, some are saying that it's 2,000 or more is the megachurch. Now, I understand we are nowhere close to being a megachurch. We're, we're, we're just fractions of even being considered that. And the most we've ever had here in a service is in a special night for a revival meeting. We had 240, give or take, people packed in here like a bunch of sardines. Whether or not God ever wants this church to be large in numbers or few in numbers, we know God is ultimately in charge of all that. But God has made a commandment to us that we are called to be faithful. Faithful, faithful, faithful. And this church, most likely it was a small church. And out of all these churches here, it was most likely the smallest church out of the seven. And the attribute that God gives this church is that they were faithful and they had little strength. And here, the same word strength here is the same where we get dynamite from. So do you want dynamite power, my friend? Do you want dynamite strength? Well, it's only found in Jesus Christ. And hey, dynamite strength is not found in how many people we have gathered. Dynamite strength is not found by how, how great and polished the, the musicians are that sing. The, the dynamite power is only found through Jesus Christ and his word. And so God is, is asking us today, are we being faithful to him and his word? Do you want miraculous, powerful strength? I do. I want to be known as a church that, is, that finds their strength in the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Hey, remember, God calls every Christian in every congregation in every generation, to be faithful. God wants you, God wants me, God wants every person who calls himself a Christian to be faithful. So, so far, the first characteristic we've, we've noticed is a faithful church has miraculous, powerful strength. But secondly today, look at verse number eight. The word of God moves forward and it says, and has kept my word. So the second characteristic of a faithful church is this thought. A faithful church has faithful, consistent obedience. A faithful church has faithful, Consistent obedience. So far, we've seen other churches who have been described as some who have kept God's word, some who have not kept God's word. And what does this mean? Does this mean that when we strike it rich, we take those treasures and we guard them and we hide them somewhere and we never leave it, never, never allow anybody access to it? Is that what this word keep means? No. This does not mean that we take God's word and we hide it under a bushel so nobody can ever see it. This word keep, it means to guard, yes. It means, in a sense, to protect, yes. But it also gives this idea of keeping and obeying. What are we to obey? Well, I mean, it's not rocket science here. It says God's word. So, so okay. So in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus spoke. He did. He spoke words. And I believe in a sense God is reminding them, the Son of God is reminding them of all the words that he spoke when he was alive on this earth. And he says, you got to keep and, and obey those words. 
Remember what he said in John 14? If you love me, keep my commandments or obey my word. But then I believe it goes further than just the words of Christ in the Gospels. I believe it goes further back into the Old Testament. And here now, as we have New Testament revelation, that we are called as a church to obey every word from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we are called to rightly divide it so we can rightly obey it. And if we don't rightly divide it, we most likely will not rightly obey it. And so here we see that, that when we keep the word of God, we've got to dig in it for ourselves. As a church body, we've got to dig in it. As individuals, we've got to dig in it. As families, we've got to dig in it. And sure, we might, we might not come to full agreement in some of the minor issues, but in some of these major issues, we've got to keep and hold fast the word of God. Obey it. Listen, I could care less how much you know about theology. I could care less how much you know about any of these issues in the book of Revelation and eschatology and end times Bible prophecy. What I care about mostly is are you obeying what you know in the word of God? A faithful church has faithful, consistent obedience. A faithful church has miraculous, powerful strength. God calls every Christian in every congregation in every generation to be faithful. Faithful, faithful, faithful. God wants us to be faithful. But now check it out now. Verse number nine, the Bible goes on to say, or excuse me, verse number eight. It says, they had little strength, they kept his word, and it says, they have not denied his name. So here's the third thought. A faithful church has authentic, devoted Loyalty. A faithful church is authentic, devoted loyalty. And I'm not talking about loyalty to a denomination. I'm not talking about loyalty to a human pastor. I'm talking about loyalty to the name of Jesus Christ. As I've been meditating here, this word denied, it, it, it literally means to disavow, to renounce. We understand that in this culture of the, of the ancient world, they were being pressured. They were being backed into a corner and given an ultimatum, either, either renounce the name of Christ or die. And as I think about church history, and as, actually as I was reading this passage, I was reminded of, of one character. In fact, as I was reading here, it just popped in my mind, one character. I'm not saying we subscribe to everything that he said or did, but I think it is noteworthy of what he did back in the 1500s. Martin Luther took the 95 Thesis and, and nailed it to the Catholic Church. There he was seeking to reform the Catholic Church. He had 95 reasons why the Catholic Church needed to, to change. And they didn't like that so well. So they brought him before the, the people who were supposedly the best of the best in Catholicism. And there they demanded that he recants what he believed or face the consequences. And there in those moments, he said, I cannot recant. I cannot go against the word of God and I cannot go against my conscience. Today, as we think about that, I, we need to also think the conclusion here, that it, the, the, draw, the, draw the parallel here, that it says they have not denied the name of Christ. So when we, in a sense, are put to the stand and we are said, hey, you neither need to renounce the name of Christ or die. If that happens, 
God wants us to be faithful. Remember back in, in, in Revelation chapter 2 with the church of Smyrna. By the way, the only two churches in these seven churches that are not rebuked is Smyrna and Philadelphia. And Smyrna, the Bible says that, that they did suffer tribulation and he commanded them to be faithful to death. So the same message here, that if, that if we're being pressured and backed into a corner and one day it might cost us here in America and we might be backed into a, to here, in a corner here in this nation and if it happens, we need to stand firm in our faith and not deny the name of Christ. Not disavow, not go against the vow that we made when we committed our life to Christ and gave our full, wholehearted allegiance to him and to his word. God calls every Christian in every congregation, in every generation to be faithful. We need that authentic, devoted loyalty. We need that faithful, consistent obedience. And we need God's miraculous, powerful strength. May I share with you a fourth characteristic of a faithful church? Look at verse number 10. It says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. Say patience with me. Patience. Say it again. Patience. And one more time, please. Patience. Patience is a hard attribute to have, isn't it? <laughs> People say, don't pray for patience because God will give it to you. <laughs> Sometimes, in fact, the last year and a half, we have learned what patience is. We've had to be patient with churches. We've had to be patient with schools. We've had to be patient with government. We've had to be patient with, with stores. We've had to be patient with so many different people and places and things. But I submit to you, the, the most patient being in all the world is Almighty God. He is patient with you and me. In fact, he is so patient and long-suffering that he doesn't want anybody to perish, but he wants every man, woman, boy, and girl to come to repentance and faith. But here, the Bible says in verse number 10, because this church kept the word of his patience. This word patience. It gives a similar meaning here of somebody who has cheerful Hopeful endurance. So today, the fourth characteristic is this. A faithful church has patient, hopeful endurance. A faithful church has patient, hopeful endurance. This is the same word that's used back in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 12. And it says, patient in tribulation. God wants us to be patient in tribulation. It says in Romans 12, 12, it says rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. It gives us the idea that, that throughout the tribulation that you're going through, remain cheerful and remain hopeful because God is going to bring you out of it. Similar thing here. Throughout all the trials that this church experienced, throughout all of the, of the, the raging storms that Satan threw their way and all the darts that they remained faithful and they endured because they knew the word of God. Why should we be, why should we be faithful to Christ today? Why should we be? Why should we? Well, because we know that God's word declares the end from the beginning and we've read the last chapter. We know what the book says and we know that God comes out on top. And so today we gotta, we gotta stay the course. Remember what Paul said, or most likely Paul, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, after just, after just summarizing all these great characters of the Old Testament, he says we've been, we've been encompassed or surrounded about with all of these great characters and witnesses. And he says, let us lay aside everything in our lives that is holding back our walk with Jesus Christ. And he says, let us run with patience, patience, 
patience. God wants us to have patience in the race. We know that this life is like a marathon because it's, it doesn't last for just one day. It lasts for many days. And then, why would we want to run this race with patience? Because Hebrews 12, 2 says that as we look back to Jesus, he endured the cross. If you think the trials that you're going through are hard, let me remind you about the enduring trial that Jesus went through on the cross. Driving the stakes into his feet, into his hands. Driving the crown of thorns into his skull. Beating him with the cat of nine tails. Jesus endured for you and me. And because he endured, he gives us the capability of enduring these trials as well. Verse 10 goes down in history as a controversial verse. But what else is new? I mean, the Bible is a controversial book. The New Testament is a controversial document. And the book of Revelation, of course, is a highly controversial book. So here, as we move forward in this verse here, I want you to understand that there's a fifth and final characteristic that we can glean from this church that we can apply today. And look, look, let's read the, the last part of verse 10. And really, we're going to go all the way down to the end here, to verse number 13. It says, I also will, because they have kept the word of his patience, he will also keep them from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So here's a thought I want to relate to you. The fifth and final characteristic. A faithful church has assured expectant deliverance. The faithful church has assured expected deliverance. So here the Bible speaks about how God is going to keep them from. Notice the term from. Say it, say it with me. From. Say it again, please. From. One more time. From. This does not say through. It says from. Okay? There's a vast difference. If it said through, then whatever trial this church was experiencing, they were to walk through the trial and God would protect them in the trial. But here it says from. So that means that God is going to deliver them from the events of this hour of temptation. Why does it say hour? Because it means a period of time. Does it mean actually 60 minutes? Most likely not. But we know that our concept of an hour means 60 minutes. So here it just means a period of time they're going to encounter temptation. Now, whether this is speaking of an event of their day or not, we really have no idea. There's no clue throughout church history that, that tells us that there was a, an event that hit the entire world that God would keep this church from. Notice it says that here that it would come upon the entire world and then to try them that dwell on the earth. Now, I do think it's interesting. When you study the word, them that dwell upon the earth in the book of Revelation, and all the several times it mentioned, it's mentioned from this moment all the way to the end, it is a reference to the unbelieving, unregenerate people in the world. So what does this mean? What is verse 10 talking about? What is the hour of temptation? What is this event that's going to come upon the entire world? Well, Daniel called it his 70th week. Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jesus called it in Matthew 24, the great tribulation. 
Now, let me take you back to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, we see that God gives Daniel a vision and a prophecy and a word. And in this vision, there are 70 weeks. And so one week, we believe, represents seven years. So you do seven times 70, and you get 490 years. So the moment that this prophecy began was when, in the days of Nehemiah, when the people of God were commissioned by a king to go back and rebuild. And that began the beginning of Daniel's 70 weeks. But from that moment when it was decreed in the days of Nehemiah, all the way up till Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and around his crucifixion time was 483 years. And then in that prophecy, God in a sense pressed the pause button after the cross, after Jesus died. And now we have what is called the church age. So the final week in Daniel's 70th week, those next seven years, have yet to be fulfilled. It has not taken place yet. And so we see that the church age is a pause between year 483 to year 484. And that is why we believe this verse is teaching us that the moment the the 70th week begins, the church as we know of the church will no longer be here. So it's the rapture. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible speaks of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible speaks about this moment when, when, the, when Jesus is going to return, in a sense, for his church in the clouds to take them. Not to establish his kingdom just yet. So the return is two phases. And so we see here that Jesus is speaking of here the first phase of his second coming, coming to take the church and to take the church out of this great time of tribulation. Now we know that that Daniel's 70th week is, is seven years. But there are passages that speak about three and a half years. And what it is referring to is the time when Jesus said great tribulation, that is in that moment, the three and a half years, the last three and a half years is when God is just gonna unleash his his judgment and disease and and plague and plague and plague on this earth and it'll be like no other time in history and we see that god has promised to keep his church out of those seven years now that being said verse 11 says that behold he comes quickly hold fast in other words remain anchored and settled in what you have that no man take your crown. So today we know that Jesus' return is, is unexpected. That is, it is imminent. That we have no idea exactly when he's going to come. We don't know exactly when the rapture is going to take place. We don't know exactly when he's going to come and establish his kingdom here on this earth. But what we do know is it is closer than when it was yesterday. I, I remember hearing Preacher Likens settling the debate for me about when all this is going to take place. He said, Jesus is coming back when we see him in the clouds. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. So we know that he's coming quickly. In other words, it is, it, is, it is at hand, as the Bible says over and over again. So we've got to constantly be looking and anticipating and awaiting, and awaiting his coming because it can happen any moment. We are told by, 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 by experts in prophecy that the next event on the time calendar of God's events is the rapture of the church. And that brings us to verse 12. So I've shared with you kind of two sermons today, a miniature sermon in verse number seven and the fuller sermon here in all these verses. Now we get to the final miniature sermon in verse number 12. Here it says the overcomer and the overcomer is the person who is a Christian who's who's been declared victorious through the work of Christ on the cross. And it says he will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out of it. So this here we see in this verse four promises from God 
here God's promise of eternal fellowship. This pillar is a symbol of security found in Jesus Christ. In the ancient culture, they had these large pillars. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? A pillar, like a big old column. And it would hold the building in place. They would put these columns and these pillars in the ancient world because they had so many earthquakes. And when the earthquake would shatter the ground, the buildings would fall. But if it had all the pillars that it needed, it would stay anchored and settled. We, our structures here in this part of the country is a lot different than the way they build things over in the western part of the nation because of the major earthquakes. And so that is the case here in this city here that most likely Jesus is referring to this because they understood all this stuff and they knew that there was a firm foundation in Jesus Christ and their faith was secured with eternal fellowship. But then it goes on to talk about God's promise of ownership where it speaks about his name. So it says, it says, and I will write upon him the name of my God. In the ancient world, they would understood this. That, that sometimes you would have the master and servant relationship and sometimes you'd be known by your master's name. And here we are known by our master's name, Jesus Christ. God, in a sense, owns me. And because he owns me, I give him ownership over everything that's in my being and everything that I have. Because he has bought me with the price of his blood, therefore I give him everything and ownership of my life. So my life is no longer mine. My life is now Christ's life, that he wants to live through me and through you, as Paul referred to in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Then it speaks about God's promise of heavenly citizenship. Hey, I know that we live in America. Not America, but America here in the South. This is America. And I'm thankful to live in this nation. But I say this respectfully. Just because you're a citizen of America does not mean you're a citizen of heaven. And today, sometimes I think that we blur this whole concept that just because you're an American, just because, you, just because you're an American, you're also a Christian. But no, 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 no. No. I met plenty of Americans who don't even know Christ as their Savior. But understand this, that as grateful as I am to be a citizen of America, my citizenship in heaven far exceeds every aspect of being a citizen in this nation. And in that country called heaven, I will never be disappointed. In that country, no politician will will abuse their authority. But then check it out now. The fourth promise God makes is God's promise of co-heirship. Speaking about the new name that will be written. Here it speaks about the city of, of his God, the new Jerusalem. And, and we'll read about that later on in the book of Revelation. Where, and this just was referring to the period of, of, of eternity. That is the ages to come in the afterlife. Which comes down out of heaven from God. And then it says, I will write upon him my new name. We get the promise of co-heirship in Jesus Christ. He gives us what he has promised us. Heaven. And then verse 13, it speaks about, if you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So the word of God from Jesus Christ, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, is being spoken here. And only through the Spirit of God can God awaken our dead souls. You know, as we think about this idea of a name, when I was a teenager, I went with my parents to BB&T right there in Boone's Mill. I'm talking about Boone's Mill a minute ago. Well, I went into Boone's Mill, BB&T Bank, and there I marched in there. I thought I was all that in a bag of chips, and I thought I was a big shot because I was going to, to make a bank account, a checking account. I was going to get my own debit card so I could swipe in Kroger, so I could swipe in Walmart, 
and buy some of my own stuff. But the only thing that they informed me was that I did not have a credible name. I needed somebody else's name on that account. And so my parents had to sign and be part of the account so I could have an account. I was, my name was meaningless in the eyes of BB&T. I should have went to another bank. Uh, but they would have said the same thing no matter which bank I went to. So check it out now. I say that to say this, that if you're trying to enter into heaven on your own name, you will be disappointed because the only name that you can enter that place is through the name of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said? Hey, listen, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? In Matthew 25, he says, people, all of us, every human being will be remembered in two ways, echoing throughout eternity. Jesus will either say, depart from me, I never knew you. Or he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So how do you want to be remembered today? Do you want to be remembered as a faithful servant of God or a faithful church of God? Or do you want to go down in eternity as one who will not be in the presence of God and was found unfaithful? Jesus said in Luke 16.10 that if you're faithful in the small things, you'll be faithful in the greater things. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, the Bible says that among stewards, it, it, we are required to be faithful. So the message today is one word, faithful, faithful, faithful. God wants you, God wants me, God wants all of us to be faithful to him. God calls every Christian in every congregation, in every generation to be faithful. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.